Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. I am so excited to welcome Jenny Blake to leave your mark. Jenny, welcome. I have so many questions and your entire platform and your three books are everything that I think our listeners are going to be so excited to hear. For everyone listening, Jenny is an award-winning author, podcaster, keynote speaker, who loves helping people move from what she calls friction to flow through smarter systems powered by, wait for it, delightfully tiny teams. Her third book is called Free Time, Lose the Busy Work, Love Your Business. And she includes an incredible amount of information to free your mind, your time, and your team to produce your best work. But she's also written a book that is so incredibly relevant right now, pivot. The only move that matters is your next one. So we're going to dive into that book too. And Jenny, you spent your career early on in Silicon Valley. You worked at Google for five years, and now you license content to clients like Google and Chanel. Your podcasts have had over a million downloads, and you basically have these incredible resources on your three sites And we're going to dive into all of this, but I first want to just say, I'm so glad to meet you. I've heard about you for quite some time and I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast. Well, likewise, right back at you, Elisa. It's just so wonderful to be here. And thank you for that fancy bio. It's like, aren't bios just totally the highlight reel? Yes, (laughs) they are. It just doesn't show any of the mess behind the scenes, but... I embrace all sides of it. I feel like it's so helpful to hear, yes, like the big moments of accomplishment and also all the struggles that I feel like I went through for all three of those books that I wanted to share out. Like if I can save any of you listening or watching any amount of time, stress or struggle, that is my mission in life. So I'm just thrilled to be here. People are going to get a lot out of this episode. And I think it's especially poignant right this minute when literally you open any single site and you see the words quiet quitting. And one of the impetuses in your career was this idea of just this incredible burnout. Will you walk us through where you came from and how you sort of ended up to decide, okay, no more. I am making a huge life change. Well, I will say that first of all, when I started working on 
the book pivot in 2013, nobody was talking about career pivots. It was only that you were having a midlife crisis or a quarter life crisis. That's it. If you were hitting what I now call a pivot point or a plateau and felt like even a perfect on paper job wasn't doing it for you. You mentioned I worked at Google for five and a half years. I often felt like I must be one of those spoiled millennials that the media keeps talking about because I'm at the Disneyland of companies and still there's a part of me that feels unfulfilled. And I was able to navigate that by pivoting internally at that time. And I stayed at the company twice as long as I otherwise would have. But the idea of pivoting, and then now we have this term quiet quitting, these just weren't around. There wasn't even language to describe this amount of change and uncertainty and insecurity that can arise, even job insecurity. Before I quit Google, I wouldn't have ever thought to call it quiet quitting, but I will say that I quietly unsubscribed from burning myself out while I was working at Google in that I had gotten promoted quickly in my first two years at the company. I became a people manager when I was 24 years old. I was launching this global program called Career Guru that still exists today. And yet there was a part of me that I kept hitting these cycles of burnout. I had a thyroid condition the entire five years that I worked there. And I love Google. I still work with them to this day. But the moment that I stopped obsessing over my next promotion and how quickly I was, quote, moving up or not, I became so much more peaceful. And I remember thinking that maybe me quietly unsubscribing from burnout was going to lead to them wanting to fire me because my performance would take such a dramatic drop. And what ended up happening was... I just stopped running myself into the ground and I was still somehow miraculously able to exceed expectations. That's kind of the performance lingo at that time. I wasn't sure if I would fail to even meet baseline expectations. I was so worried about how my performance would be perceived. But I think that's what planted the first seeds of sometimes it's an internal shift in free time. Now, many years later, in fact, a decade later, I call it sailing the sea of shiny shoulds. Like where in our life, even for me, being on social media was a shiny should. Just noticing what are the shoulds in our life? What are the really shiny ones where we almost feel like they're an obligation at this point? But is that true? And you don't have to quietly quit your job. I'm curious to hear your take on that too. But you can quit certain aspects of hustle culture and burnout that tell you that that's the only way to get things done or the only way to move ahead in your career. And I feel very strongly about that, that working in a sustainable way is how we all thrive and how we get our best, most strategic creative thinking anyway. Yeah. You know, I think though, not everyone is created equal from a work ethic perspective. Mm -hmm. And something tells me that you're normal operating default setting is like at a 200% level. So if you're quiet quitting, you're probably just going down to 100% in a way, whereas I don't think everyone starts at that high of a threshold. So my opinion in general is that I think boundaries are super important. And I think burnout is something we should all avoid. And I think there is a way to be a superstar during the workday and still be able to achieve that. But I'm curious, when you finally made this decision to leave and start on your own, you started consulting, right? And then you went through another period of this reset. Yes. So tell us a little bit about that, because that was sort of the precursor of this, right? Yeah, that was it. 
So the opposite of quiet quitting, like at that time, it was not yet the main story that we're now all sick of hearing. Like, oh, quit my six figure job to live out of a suitcase. Like now that's just commonplace. We hear it all the time. But back then it just seemed bonkers. I even had a mentor who was working outside of the company said, oh, you're leaving. Can I apply for your role? And that scared me because I was leaving to do what she was doing, which was coaching and consulting. And it really scared me that, well, the person I'm looking to wants my job. So am I stupid to quit? And what nerve did I have to think that I could somehow launch a business that would provide more for me than Google was? six figure salary, including bonus, three meals a day, yoga on site, laundry on site, and really brilliant people working on big meaty things at the center of Silicon Valley. Like why on earth would I leave that? You're right about the integrity piece. I did reach a point where I felt like I just couldn't honor both. I couldn't launch my first book and still work at Google and show up for either of them. I just reached a fork in the road with my time and my energy and I definitely didn't want to phone it in. That's not my style. So that's true. I would not want to make a commitment that I couldn't keep. And so I thought, because I had hit that point halfway through my tenure. First of all, I worked at a startup two years. When I hit a plateau, I was so young. I was 19. Instead of talking to the founder and trying to figure out what we could do, have what we in the biz call a career development conversation, I just started interviewing for Google in my car on lunch breaks. And so my first conversation with the founder was my last, it was giving my notice. And when I was at Google, I started to study this. Well, why am I hitting against this wall every two years after I left, I hit it again. So now it wasn't just that I was in the wrong companies or the, you know, even a really great role. It was in my own business. I'm once again, asking what's next. And this time without a paycheck to fund that. So I came to describe those of us who have this sense of hunger for learning and growing, I call us high net growth individuals, mm-hmm. that money is important, but it's not everything. So yes, we do want to cover our needs and what we're earning is important and we want it to be abundant, but we also feel really passionate and we'll get very antsy if we're not learning and growing and evolving and making an impact. And that's when I started to put the building blocks in place of reverse engineering. What do all these moments have in common? How do we get out of them? And how do we accelerate the process of figuring out what's next? Because either there's something wrong with me and I'm destined to never be happy in my career, even while running my own business, or this trend, something in the economy is actually shifting. And we are all going to be experiencing this more frequently than our parents' generation. And now with the events of 2020 and beyond, we all got pivoted and we can all see super clearly it's now a global conversation that everything is up for grabs, everything's upside down. You can't even plan three months out because we don't know how the economy or how certain practices, post-pandemic practices are going to be put into place. And so I think that a lot of us these last few years have had to do some really deep digging and searching. It doesn't mean we have the option to just change on a dime the context of our career, but I definitely feel like we're all having to confront these questions of what's most important, what do we want to emphasize, and finding that right fit. I mean, everyone needs to do it. So one of the things you have spoken about is how you had to really be self-reflective about how you spent your time, especially during the pandemic, when you made a living out of keynote speeches, and those sort of disappeared, as all of our work did during the pandemic. And 
free time really is about intentionally designing smarter systems, right? To free up time and work fewer hours. And you've been very transparent about your salary and how many hours you spend. So will you share with everyone? Sure. And let me say that I loved your conversation with Nicole around different streams of income. And so if anything, I at one point had so many streams of income that it's actually adding unnecessary complexity to the business. I remember at once I did a webinar on 10 plus scalable streams of solopreneur income, and I had 12 at that time. Some wow. are more passive than others, but absolutely keynote speaking was the grease in the wheels of my entire operation. I needed one gig a month and often I had two, but I, I needed one to just pay the bills. And so 2021, the year I wrote free time was the first time in 11 years of running my business that I gave myself permission to be in the red, to spend more money than I made, to not intentionally try to double down. And there's a phrase I include in the book, order off of yesterday's menu. Because oh. I felt like I could have just tried to go really hard on pivot. That book came out in 2016. Everyone was talking about pivoting in 2020 and beyond. And something in me just said, with all the client work, when I call it when the financial tides recede, when the tide goes out, you can either rush in after it and chase after it and panic and freak out, or I can look at what's washing up on the shore. What are all the gems and lessons and insights if I just be patient? and receive and sort of tune into my intuition about what's next for me. Mm -hmm. And so because I didn't panic about the money, I was able to say what's in my heart of hearts. And the thing I've always loved is building my business and talking about that. So that's where free time, it was more giving myself permission to speak more publicly about my business because, and I know you've had many guests talk about this. I also had some imposter syndrome of, well, I don't run a seven figure business and what do I know about running a business? Everything I've learned, I've learned from reading books and interviewing smart people on my two podcasts. And I just had not in 10 years given myself permission that I really had something to say. So you asked specifically about the numbers. What I had done well, I would say, is honor my own values. At one point, when I looked at the last five years average pre-pandemic, my owner pay, what I was paying myself and taking out of the business was about 300,000, sometimes more, sometimes less. I never hit a million dollars in top line revenue, but I was running really lean because I had no full-time employees. And I say that no one in the business works full-time, including me. So what I'm able to manage is about 20 hours a week. Sometimes it's 10. Sometimes during a launch, it's more, but not often because I just find that 20 hours allows me to still work out be healthy, get enough sleep, walk my dog, spend time with my husband, see friends, relax. I'm deeply introverted, highly sensitive. I need a lot of alone time. So that setup is what has fueled me for certainly the last five years where I have been building with more scale in mind. And that's ultimately what I share in the book is there is a crop of us entrepreneurs who I call high net freedom. So building on the high net growth concept, if you're high net freedom, you don't want to earn seven figures. If the way to earn that is to have all this stress and pressure and overhead and be losing sleep. And still at the end of the day, sometimes people earning all that money, their owner pay is less than what they pay their team members. And I just, I've been really clear that it's important to me how I grow and I'm not going to grow it at, at all costs. So smart. 
Let's dive in a little bit to some of your philosophies and just to share. So we spoke earlier about this friction and flow. What is friction and what is flow and how do you get from friction to flow? Well, this is the primary diagnostic of the free time book and the free time framework is noticing where are you in friction? Where are you in flow? So friction is a feeling. It could be any area, professional or personal, where you have a sense of heaviness, dread, despair. You can't bring yourself. You're procrastinating. You just don't want to do those areas or it makes your stomach turn or you're like ignoring something. So what in your life and your work is creating the most friction? And then once you've identified those, another way to think of them are bottlenecks. Where is the energy of your life getting blocked or stopped or constricted? And it feels tight and full of pressure. And then flow is that sense of time is flying. You don't even realize it passing. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi describes it as a near ecstatic state of bliss where you're so engrossed in what you're doing. You're just completely present. And then flowing as well is just flowing with the energy of our life. We all have different seasons and sometimes we're more creative, sometimes less. Sometimes the financial tides recede. Sometimes things are really abundant and how connected are you to the larger collective consciousness and going with the flow of what's unfolding in your life? There's the Zen saying, don't push the river. And I think of flow that way. It's like, there's another phrase, lift the oars. So I cannot take credit for these, but they've been so influential to me the last many years of like, where am I pushing the river and where can I lift the oars? Where can I let the river take me? And Tosha Silver, Outrageous Openness. I highly recommend her book too. It's so good for that kind of effortless surrender, but still taking clues for next steps. So once you do understand what your sense of flow feels like, and then those friction areas, the free time framework, align, design, assign. So first, are you aligned with that anymore? Do you need to stop doing that altogether or just say no to certain types of requests altogether or no to a job role? Maybe it's as big a move as that. Design is being really intentional about the ideal outcomes and impact you're trying to make and designing a process that would be smoother and more joyful and aligned with your values, your energy and your strengths. And then a sign is a challenge to all of us. How can we double what we delegate? Even if you don't have any full-time employees, there's so many ways to delegate routine elements of our life, whether it's setting up household products on subscription, whether it's hiring a task rabbit to help with a big time, tedious kind of errand, whether it's hiring a part-time VA at $250 a month, like you can start in a really low investment and get a whole heck of a lot of things done. For me, it was putting a cleaning service set to recur every week so that my husband and I could stop fighting about the house being messy or not. You know, so sometimes it's just looking for, my friend Christine calls it a sacred third solution. Like anywhere that you're in a tug of war and that things are tense, you can elevate, you almost picture a triangle, just elevate into this sacred third where everybody wins, everybody benefits. And a lot of the impetus behind systems thinking for me is looking for those solutions where it really serves the highest good. Everyone involved is better off. Oh, I'm so inspired. I need to like literally digest all of this. I'm like probably like be a great experiment for you. <laughs> I, literally, I literally probably do everything wrong. 
I, I highly wanna... doubt it because I know how much you've got going on too. So I know you figured out a whole bunch of things oh, on the work no. and home and parenting front. My mantra is I never seek perfection. Like I don't wait for perfection okay. and I just keep going. And if I mess up along the way, it's fine. But like, I just have to keep moving But similar, when you were talking about your career and it was like, is something wrong with me? I very much resonate to that feeling of just constantly trying to figure out what's next and how things can work better and be more efficient. So I totally relate. I've also been thinking a lot lately about three types of people. I could be missing some, but builders, maintainers, and optimizers. And I feel like builders love the new. And I count myself among them. I got to be building. I like making things from scratch, even in my business, even in the business back end, writing a book, taking an idea from a figment of my imagination to finish thing. Every podcast episode is creating something in the world. So that's builder maintainers. These are people who are really good at maintaining projects and just keeping the trains running on time. And then optimizers tend to think in a real order from chaos, problem solving kind of way. Like, Not only am I going to maintain this project or this program, but I'm going to have the amount of effort it takes. And I'm going to create all these smart systems on how to do it smoother. And so I realized that if you're a builder, we're going to be a little antsier in our career because we want to build things. By the time, even when I launched that global coaching program at Google, I thought launching and creating it was the hard part. Marketing it and maintaining it is a whole nother bag. So I realized I hate the marketing piece, which doesn't serve me well as a business owner because growing what already exists can be challenging and marketing is its own thing. I make the most of it and I have found ways to quote market my books, really just sharing them with people who I think can benefit. But I notice that my strength, I get really bored from just maintaining or marketing what already exists. And so I have to often pull myself back from just creating something new when I should be doubling down on something that already exists. But I've acknowledged that that will make some of us a little antsier if we're used to being kind of creative, ideating builders. I think we're like twins, maybe. I don't know. I feel like I was separated (laughs) from you. But first of all, wouldn't you say that you're a builder and an optimizer? Because I feel like in those two definitions, you're both, right? I do love optimizing. And I used to get frustrated. I would think of like, okay, a team member has been doing this task for three years. Like, why didn't they see this most obvious way to automate the entire thing? And then I just realized not everybody thinks that way. So yeah, I have not taken this theory to the end, I'm sure we could all be more than one. And that would be a helpful thing. One time a mentor told me, he said, the thing that you are best at as the business owner is going to be your business's biggest weakness. And that's true. So like, because I like optimizing and tinkering with systems, I don't properly teach other people how to do it. I end up doing it myself. And so he's absolutely right. Like the strengths can also be a downside if you try to do it all yourself. Well, don't you talk about the external, what do you call it? Yes. Business mind. Yes. That. So isn't that what you're saying? It's like really teaching other people to do what don't have everything in your head. Definitely that. That's a good example. I use notion. The externalized business mind takes a page out of David Allen's book, getting things done a total productivity genre classic that our mind is for having ideas, not holding them. 
And I'm sure we all know this. Like if you don't write something down, it's just so much easier to forget it. And if you don't write it down, you have something rattling around in your brain and your mind creating friction because you have to keep remembering it, keep thinking about it. Whereas if it's captured and you trust your system, you don't have to remember it's, you can relax a little bit more. And as you start to have more complexity, even in your household, let alone a business or your team, you want people to be able to jump in when you're not around and just be able to find what they need. And that results in them asking you fewer questions. Like even on the home front, I use one password in my business and my husband uh, is not like the most, I mean, he likes tech, but it's not his thing the way it is mine. But now he stopped asking me the password for things because we use one password. And that's just an example of reducing friction on all sides. He can find what he needs. We've delegated it to a tool, but it reduces the number of questions for me of like, where do I find the password for this again? He knows now where to find it. And I like using sometimes home examples because not everyone runs their own business, but also to see even if you have a full-time job, like there are so many things you can do personally. There's all kinds of aspects of adulting that are incredibly annoying (laughs) that I don't think any of us want to deal with. Yes. There's too many to list actually. I know. I mean, it's just crazy. So I want to go back to one thing you spoke about because it deserves a little more attention. So sailing the sea of shiny shoulds, which is like We can't say that three times fast because we'll just stutter. Sailing the sea of shiny shoes. How do you not go down that hole, right? Because the shiny shoes are also sometimes things that make you feel guilty that you're not doing them. A hundred percent. That's what makes them shiny. Like if we knew that something is not for us and we reject it and we don't think about it again. And the ones that are shiny, I also call it micro guilt. It's like, oh, my email inbox is the number one source of micro guilt. I just, it's like always there, always net kind of poking at me like all the people I haven't gotten back to quickly enough. The shiny shoulds, you're right. This is such an important question and a good one. Truly speaking, they're shiny because it's a best practice and most people are doing it. And I can't tell you how many people, listen, okay. I got on Twitter in 2008. I started my first website in 2005. I started blogging in 07. I was early to a lot of this stuff, but there reached a point with Instagram in particular. I'm not a very visual person. She's not my thing. And I noticed right away, right when it was early days of Instagram, that it would take me out of my life and into my phone. So instead of eating a meal, I'd be like, I better take a picture of this or seeing some crazy thing in New York. I would start to like be getting out my phone. And I just did not like that feeling. And then as it evolved, I realized that it was a complete machine for compare and despair. So being sensitive as I am, I would get on Instagram, see whatever the algorithm wanted to show me, even if it was friends and what they were up to. And sure enough, I would sign off feeling worse. And just every time I would close the app, I somehow felt worse. And I figured I could either go to therapy to try to address why social media gives me compare and despair, or I could just not participate. Ultimately, I decided for the latter because I want my attention and my focus really harnessed. And I realized that my experience of social media was a sort of death by a thousand cuts feeling or death by 20 inboxes that every time some entrepreneur wanted to launch a new social media platform. I now had a new inbox. So it's like email, texting, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and on and on and on. And if I spent my days trying to figure out what 
witty quips to post and then respond in all the comments, I would not create things like my book or my podcasts. So I had to realize that although it seemed like a good idea in practice, it was splitting my attention. I was feeling worse and that my priority, which may not be the same as others, was doing really deep work as Cal Newport calls it. That's what I love about this format, this conversation and podcasting is I find them to be so rich and deep and meaty. And I love listening to podcasts. So I think it's looking at your experience and being really honest with yourself. And if you were to give yourself permission to drop a shiny should, what would that be like? What would that feel like? And then also taking it to the logical conclusion, or maybe it seems illogical of what's the worst that can happen. For me, I realized that I was not getting business from social media. I was getting business from my books, from the bigger ideas. And I'm willing to sacrifice maybe what some would say is a smaller platform because I'm not in all the places for continuing to emphasize as meaty ideas as I can grapple with. And the last thing I'll say is I also don't believe in kind of a linear correlation, like time and money aren't always correlated. And just because you build a hundred thousand Instagram followers doesn't mean any of them are paying attention. Doesn't mean that a change in the algorithm is going to be in your favor. Doesn't mean you're going to get clients or have a thriving business or a thriving life that way. So I'm just very, very skeptical that just pure cold, hard numbers in terms of platform size correlate to life satisfaction. And I think if, if you're willing to question it, that's step one on all this. No, I think that's fascinating. But I will say, I believe it's not just one thing, right? We all have to pull a lot of different levers. So having a book is one thing, right? But then having a podcast, having a website, having a newsletter, having a community, all of those things work in harmony to effectively market your message, right? So you can leave out social from that equation, but you probably couldn't leave out your podcast and you probably couldn't leave out your website, right? So those feel more crucial. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, those mediums, obviously you feel more comfortable in and they're serving you. And I personally, I mean, although I'm a huge fan of social media and I've been on since early days, I definitely think if it's something that doesn't serve you, it should not be forced in any way because then you're constantly miserable. So I fully support your your opinion. Thank you. And I want to add to what you just said. Some people love it. And I I would never take that away. I think what you were saying, if you can at least put your attention into one or two major places and you, let's say you love Instagram and you love Twitter and you can do really well at those or some people now I have a friend doing really well on TikTok. She's a hypnotherapist and that's her medium. Like she's just crushing it and loving it. And she goes in waves too. Sometimes she gives herself permission to take a mini sabbatical from it. But I, I agree. I think it's about matching the channel to your strengths and energy and giving yourself permission not to be in all the places. Yes. And also, by the way, warning to your friend, like all these platforms, you're renting your audience. You're completely at the whim of the algorithm. And we're already seeing on TikTok, people are, their views are being suppressed. Bethany Frankel the other day posted a TikTok. She's like, you probably won't see this video because now I'm getting like 400 views. So The media mix is actually the secret to survival because throwing your eggs in one platform basket is certainly not the answer, no matter how good you are on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, you know, pick your poison. 
No, it's so important. And that's why for me, my two channels, I call it ongoing public original thinking. I think all of us, if you want to have a platform at all, it's like on an ongoing basis, just as you said, putting out imperfect content, but doing that consistently over the long arc of your career, pick your channels for OPOT. And mine are podcast and newsletter primarily because yes, like even a podcast, I have no clue who's listening. I have no clue. So unless somebody engages and signs up for one of my two newsletters, that's the end of it. I just, it's like this talking into the void and you never really know who's out there, who's learning, who's growing, who's benefiting. And so those two channels are ones that I have a little more control over. They're not algorithm based. It's more of putting the thinking out there. And I also strive to always make things helpful enough that somebody wants to tell a friend organically without me having to say, Hey, can you share this with a friend? Cause I know when I listen to something or read something that's genuinely helpful, I can't wait to send it to five friends. So I'm always striving to hit that mark too. Oh, I call that the black pant example, which is when you find that perfect pair of black pants, you need to tell at least five people about them, right? Yes. Please keep me on your notification (laughs) list for those. (laughs) I got a pair, speaking of black pants from J. Crew skinny jeans that I bought knowing I needed it for a speaking gig. I wore those pants for every single speaking engagement for like, three or four years. <laughs> should have spot through the door. Let's talk about your motto. One of your mottos, I guess. If change is the only constant, let's get better at it. So <laughs> change is the only constant today. I think we all know that now. Know. How do people get better at it? Well, for one, this shame and blame, blaming ourselves when we hit these pivot points or a plateau it's unnecessary. I think it prolongs the suffering around it. Just saying like, okay, I'm at a pivot point or I'm getting a little restless. Now, of course, we don't want to be a career Roomba, as my friend Brad put it. You don't want to just bounce around as soon as you hit the first challenge or obstacle. It's funny. But I do think that if we take it less personally, one thing that really surprised me was when I started working on pivot, it was 2014. And every single person I would tell the concept to said, oh my gosh, I need that book. Oh, I'm in the middle of a pivot right now. It was way more people than I expected. People of all ages, stages, bank account balance. I was shocked. There was almost nobody that I told the idea to that didn't say, oh, I need that book. I'm in the middle of that right now. That was very surprising. So I realized that the big secret is we're all pivoting constantly. We just think we're the only one or we think it's just us or that there's something wrong. And then the second way is I think sometimes we focus too much on what we don't want, don't have, don't know. And that creates a lot of analysis paralysis. Almost all the successful pivoters have doubled down on something that was already working and run a series of small experiments. So the third stage of the pivot method pilot, this is like, you can't know the answer to any given pivot upfront. And so this thing changes the only constant. Yes. Therefore make experiments a constant in your life. Like always be piloting, always have few little irons in the fire where those experiments will start to show you which ones start to take on a natural momentum of their own. But there's no such thing as solving a pivot in your mind before you actually start road testing those ideas. That is such a great point. It's such a great point, but there are so many people who feel like they do need to have it all figured out. Like 
this is why this question, and I, I wrote it in Leave Your Mark too. It's like, I hate a five-year plan. I hate a three-year plan Me because too. Yeah. by the time you're done planning it, it's either been done 400 times or you don't even like the plan anymore. So for the people who do feel like they have to have it all figured out, what would you say to them? Well, it depends. If you are trying to leave a job and a salary, you do have some real practical considerations. What's your pivot runway? How much money is in the bank? How much time do you have to be in between opportunities? Do you want to quit one job before you have the next one lined up? When you're running your business, it can be a little more fluid in some ways, but then you always have the specter of like, can I even pay the bills this month at all? Especially if you need to take time away. So yeah, it's a great point. I agree. Thing is, I'm kind of a rebellious business owner. And sometimes I joke that maybe it's more of a hobby, even though it's like I'm heading into year 12 because (laughs) I don't set goals. I don't care. I don't obsess over the metrics. I just kind of trust the direction it's moving. And I try to keep a strong vision. And I also try to build, you know, in free time, I say how we bake is as important as what we make. So I think you can have a vision. I have goals of like having my podcast break even and growing the shows, but it's really slow. And sometimes I get really frustrated and disheartened and discouraged. And I compare myself to other shows and the whole numbers game. Then I have to just remember what are the benefits of this? Even if I don't hit those specific goals or by a specific timeframe, what intangible value is this bringing to my life? And just trying to stay focused on the process and the benefits and trying to find joy and gratitude for what is already here. Mm -hmm. I find that that helps me release the grip on whatever plan or specifics is. So it's like staying focused and grateful on what's already here, having a vision, but then being a little more open to how that vision comes to pass. Great advice. Great, great, great advice. And we can talk about podcasts after. Talk about momentum. Tell people what momentum is. So Momentum has pivoted. It's called BFF. It's my private community for small business owners. Yeah, it's funny. A bunch of friends, unknowingly, we all launched communities called Momentum at the exact same time. (laughs) And I loved it because it kind of builds on what we were saying. I felt like, what's the goal of pivoting? It's not a final destination. It's just a feeling of momentum that we're all after a feeling that we have wind in our hair. We're skiing downhill, a sense that we know where we're going and we can kind of have fun on the way. And so now it's just shifted slightly to BFF kind of matches the free time branding and idea. And that's a private community for small business owners, specifically heart-based business owners who don't necessarily have ambitions to grow a really big business. We do want to have a delightfully tiny team and figure out how to do more with less and also how to do more of our best work. So that's been really joyful. We're seven years in now, and it's like one of my favorite places to hang out. That's awesome. What's next? What are you most excited about? Because free time came out in March. So certainly it's probably about that time when you're like thinking about what you're doing next. (laughs) Well, it's it's so interesting because yes, on the one hand, first of all, I have to pull myself back from any, I'm not allowed to create anything new right now other (laughs) than new episodes. And I will also say like, I set a mission for the book. I want to set 50 million hours free. And so it's really interesting. Book marketing tends to be a long haul a little bit. It's not a month. It's not a week. It's a five-year journey. And that journey comes with a lot of ups and downs. And so 
sometimes I'll find myself with the book or the podcasts getting discouraged. Even pivot, I have this goal to earn out my advance and I'm close and it's sold more than 98% of books that exist, but it hasn't earned out its advance. And I have to remind myself, I saw this meme, um, this guy, Jack Butler, I think on visualizedvalue.com. He says, failure is the frame, not the picture. And what it shows is this graph going up and down like a stock chart. And the frame is only around the graph going down and looking like hitting a dip basically. But the bigger picture, you see that the graph keeps going and then it does bounce up and even higher. And so when you ask what's next, part of it is not gauging quote success or failure of anything I'm doing too soon because that makes me want to quit <laughs> because I go, well, it's not working you know, or the podcasts are growing really slowly. Or what does that mean? Am I a bad podcaster? People don't like my shows. It's getting too crowded. There's too much competition. I go down this crazy rabbit hole. And so I've given myself this year to really invest across the board, book, podcast, community. And I really love it. I really enjoy podcasting. It's like, really, I joke how I make friends as an introvert. And I think what's next is really trying to grow my entire platform because everything is built. You know, I say in free time, um, are you ready for your big break or would your business break? And I feel like I'm ready for a big break, but now I need to keep spreading the word and helping others do the same so that it all kind of can grow. But I have all the different programs and things in place to catch that interest once I'm able to generate it. I can totally relate. So last question is always the same on this show. And you have so many different amazing platforms, like you say, and sort of different avenues you can go down. But ultimately, like when you think about how you want to leave your mark, is there one specific way you can identify or is it a trifecta of things? You're allowed to have more than one. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's such a good question. Well, I had a lot of anxiety in my 20s and I was weirdly practicing memento mori before I knew that that was a thing where I just would always worry if I die tomorrow, am I doing the right things? And that was always on my mind. And I, I realized when my first book, Life After College, was about to come out, I was driving and I got really scared that what if I die and this book doesn't come out? With every book I've told my editor and my brother, like in all seriousness, if I die before this comes out, can you just make sure that it gets published? And I've said it every time because I think the way I want to leave my mark is create things that help others, that create a sense of ease and joy and relief. My friend calls it a freedom architect, but helps save you time and struggle and energy in some ways, large and small. And so my books are really the way that I leave my mark. And I do, I'm not trying to die tomorrow, knock on wood, uh, but I do try to live that way as if like, I really try with my creative projects. Todd Henry wrote a book called Die Empty. And that says it really well and very succinctly is I, I really try to leave my mark by giving everything the best I have and being as open as I can in service of saving other people time, energy, hopefully money as well. Well, you certainly are because your books are incredible. Thank you. You had so much great advice on this podcast. Your books are full of gems, all of them. And my money's on you. I, I can't wait to see. <laughs> I can't you. wait to see where this all goes. No, it was really a pleasure. Thanks for coming on the show. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me right back at you. I'm so happy we're connected now. Yes. So Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up a copy of my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. 
If you're on Instagram, make sure to follow at Leave Your Mark Podcast to stay up with the latest episodes. And of course, say hi to me at Aliza Licht XO. If you're on Twitter, definitely reach out at Aliza Licht. I would love to hear from you. If you want to subscribe to my newsletter or attend a future virtual mentoring event, go to alizalick.com for more information. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.